Come on. They're right there. Let's go. Move, 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 move. This episode of Choices Not Chances podcast is sponsored by Louisiana Gun Shop. Located on Highway 90 West in Broussard, Louisiana, just south of Lafayette. For more information, stay tuned at the end of this episode. This is Choices Not Chances podcast with Ryan and Matt. I'm your co-host, Matthew Charette. Sitting next to me is Ryan Rogers. Ryan. All right. Hey, guys. Glad you came out. Glad you're back with us. Uh, today's going to be a little bit off pace. We're not talking war stories. We're going to actually talk some some current events and just some, some of how the country's going. And it's going to be with one of my lifelong confidants, somebody that I've learned an immense uh, amount through both uh, through through our rearing days coming up. It's going to be my older brother, John. Rogers. So he's going to join us today. And and we're just going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about stuff. We're going to have a an impactful conversation for you today. Um, Just to give you a little background on john he about 15 years now in education, he did nine years as a government teacher, psychology, sociology, world history and current events. He was three years as the athletic director at his school in Athens, Ohio. Uh, He did three years as the uh, as the principal. Uh, assistant principal, sorry, six years as a football coach, two years as a wrestling coach, and has his education, both his bachelor's and his master's in education out of The Ohio State University. Uh, he loves long walks on the beach and the occasional shed hunting for whitetail sheds uh, as he as he truffles through the woods of southern Ohio. So uh, today we have the pleasure of having him on. And, and look, guys, I tell you, I'm going to bring people on that I know for a fact can can, can make an impact. And then uh, that's going to be in all in all aspects. Right. So there's no doubt in my mind, the amount of impact that my brother that John has had on me throughout the years has been uh, immense. And, 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 and we're here to share some of that knowledge today. So, John, thank you for uh, finally setting this up. I know we've been talking about it for a while, but uh, thanks for thanks for uh, meeting up with me on this and um, and joining us tonight on behalf of on behalf of all of us here. So. Um, I guess, the, welcome. yeah, so I, I guess the, the way we start everything else is just kind of take us through, um, take us through your life. Let's start at the beginning at childhood and kind of walk us into, uh, high school, college teaching, and then, then we'll pull the lessons out of the conversation. Sure. Yeah. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. It's nice to meet both. You know, I had, I didn't know, really know Matt before couple weeks ago when we talked about doing this so it's great to meet you guys thank you for all you've done for our country um i know that it's hard for me to even put into words how thankful i am that i've been able to to do the relatively simplistic things that i've been able to do in my life because of the sacrifices you all and your uh comrades have made for us so um that a million times over thank you um i'm yeah i'm glad to yeah we can go into our past you know a lot of my story so it's funny to tell it to you because you and I kind of lived it together to the point where people even thought we were twins <laughs> at times in our life. And they would ask our parents all the time, like, are these two twins? And um, so you and I came up kind of in the same way. So I wouldn't be telling you anything that's too shocking. But one thing I've come to know, and I think you probably feel the same way. And I tell kids sometimes in my office, this is like, I feel like we hit the parent lottery. Mm. Um, you know, uh, it's hard for me ne- necessarily to connect to people who come from traumatic situations with their parents because we just had such a 
solid upbringing with the people who raised us. Mm. Uh, and I think that, you know, I try to exercise as much empathy as I can for people who didn't have that advantage. But from the time we were young, we had a dad who instilled great values in us. He's like an imperfect man, like the two of us are, but he also like, he put, he, he built the structure. Like when we talk about setting up your shot, I feel like my shot was kind of set up for me by mm. a guy who let me know things about the world. Like, you know, you're not going to be handed things. You're going to have to work for what you're given. Um, you know, things are going to knock you down. You got to get yourself up and dust yourself off and not blame others. Those are really expensive lessons that people pay to learn nowadays because, um, mm. uh, they're not given uh they're not given those things from birth like we were so from a young age we were kind of taught to be tough whether that was hunting or involving us in sports um, both of us were involved in both of those things um came up in a rural kind of i guess what a rural what would you call it like a rural slash suburb not really suburban kind of country lifestyle yeah it's that we probably connected with redneck lifestyle, but we weren't really rednecks. Like, you know, I couldn't change, I couldn't like change my oil or, or like, I didn't know how to, you know, pick corn, but we were out in cornfields sort of. Yeah. Uh, so it was kind of that lifestyle. And, um, and then uh, I know in like fifth grade, a teacher wrote on one of my tests or I, I shouldn't say that. I think she just kind of said to me, you know, John college isn't for everyone. <laughs> because I was just like, I was ADHD still am. And, uh, and, um, so I thought, well, that's probably not my route. And then got into high school and had a little bit of success academically kind of liked, uh, philosophy kind of liked talking about big issues with my friends. And so I thought, I, oh, you know, I think I might entertain an education really loved playing football. Football made a huge impact on my life. And I thought I wanted to pursue that, uh, a couple of my buddies went to Capital University, so I went went and looked at Capital and talked about maybe going there. Ended up being that like you know thirty five thousand dollars a year wasn't going to work for me, so <laughs> I uh, went to the, to the Ohio State University where I think it was twelve thousand dollars a year for undergrad. Mm -hmm. um, worked all four years, so I definitely kind of earned my pace there because I was a pizza delivery guy. Worked at UP, uh, worked at uh, FedEx for three of those years. Um, and kind of learned how to be a working slash um, working student. And um, it was that those were hard days and they definitely tested my metal. My undergrad years were mostly, you know, getting up at five in the morning. I'd go and work out at the little Woody Hayes Center there and then go to class all day. And then at four o'clock or so, go into FedEx and work until 11 o'clock at night and then go home and wake up at five and do it all again. And did that for three years mm. uh, of my junior like sophomore, junior, senior year sort of thing. And like, and so uh, at that time though, if I can interject, like, did you already know what you wanted to be? Did you know you wanted to pursue being a teacher? And and if so, at what, what's the earliest memory or the earliest thought that you have of where you wanted to go with that? My earliest thoughts of a career were wanting to be a teacher. Like I felt like I had a knack, even at a young age. I remember, did you have Mr. Cordell in high school, mm -hmm. the chemistry teacher? Yeah. So there was a time where like, he was a great dude, no, nothing against Mr. Cordell. I love him. But uh, there was a time where he was trying to explain like how moles work to people. And I thought the way he's explaining that is not connecting. And I, I said, can I have the, can I have the chalk for a second? <laughs> and I went up there and explained, everybody's like, ah, so I felt like I always had a knack for synthesizing information that was hard for people to get and putting it in the right words and framing it up the right way. Um, all the way back to maybe being 10 or 11 years old, 
we had a little, I don't know if you remember this, but in, in our younger brother, Tyler and Lucas's room, we had this little easel that had like a whiteboard on one side and a chalkboard on the other. And I remember like sitting there with Tyler and Lucas, like explaining to them how to spell <laughs> and how, to talk, like, how sentence structure works. So I, I remember always wanting to pursue that career and mm. make those connections and um, always felt like I had a knack for it. But I did get it when I got into college, there was one point where uh, I looked at the paycheck potential and I went through a breakup my freshman year and I thought, you know what, I think I need to make a lot of money. So I started, I changed my major to go on like a dental track because I thought, man, dentists, dentists do pretty well. Mm-hmm. And I got into that like about five months and I was my, the pull to teaching was so strong that it just any thoughts of like making more money were just not my, I knew that wasn't my calling. I knew it wouldn't make me happy. And I can tell you honestly that in the 15 years I've been doing this job, it doesn't feel like work. Because mm-hmm. um, that per- the purpose of of trying to help students um, fulfill their potential is is so strong that it you know it, it over it overshadows everything else. So I think I knew from a young age, and I think I still know that this is what I need to be doing. And so, like, and there's there's something that you know Matt and I have talked both probably online and offline about that. But like uh, something that I always bring up, especially with uh, educators, first responders and military is like you can only put so much money on that before you start recruiting the people that don't have that calling and otherwise would not do that in my opinion job with the same passion and and and, uh, attention and focus as you would because it's more of a calling for you it's almost like yeah i know i'm going to make less money but that is where i'm called to serve that's my purpose and so you put everything into it and you're really good at your job because of that Whereas if somebody said, oh, you can make $250,000 being a high school teacher, they're going to go get their credentials and then come and it's going to be about the money versus, you know, a calling to come shape minds. And, uh, and so double edged sword, maybe I don't, I don't know how to fix that, but I know that first responders, military and educators, uh, are some of the most admirable jobs on the planet, but you just can't get you're not going to get paid doing them, which seems to be a necessary evil. I think that's, I agree with you. I think there's probably an, a good argument to be had there the other direction too. Like if you paid a hundred thousand dollars, you'd have these people who are much more, you know, they, people who want to be teachers and would be great teachers, but they go into other avenues because of the money. Uh, there are probably some of those too, who just say, this is definitely my calling and it they would be great at it, but they avoid it because it's just not, the pay is not there. Yeah. Um, uh, it's possible that that would be the problem too, but I, I do see what you're saying. And I do think that for me there, that overwhelming draw to be an educator, um, it did, it, it trumped the money thing for me. And maybe that did help to make, you know, it is definitely is not for me about the financial reward and it never was. Um, I don't even like, you know, with all due respect to my teaching colleagues, I don't even like like the little jokey t-shirts that say, you know, I teach for three reasons, June, July, and August. Like those things give me a kind of creepy feeling because mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, I'm there for one reason. That's the kids and trying to make people's lives better. And um, I came down to Appalachia. So when I graduated from uh, Ohio State with my bachelor's, I went into their master's program, got accepted that master's was an ex- it was an accelerated master's program that took 18 months, which was great. It was it was um, transformational for me. Uh, I loved my master's program taught at Westerville North, which is in the northeast side of Columbus. 
Uh, and then I had a girlfriend at the time who was going to school at Hawking College down in down in Ath down in the Athens area. I'd never been to Southeast Ohio really. You and I went down here and rode, rode quads when we were younger, and that was I'd only been as far as a little town called Nelsonville, and mm -hmm. I didn't even know that Athens was past Nelsonville, so mm -hmm. I was clueless about this area. And I came down here and I thought I'll serve a couple of years down there and then I'll get back up to Dublin or Grove City or Westerville or one of these suburban areas around Columbus and try to make a little bit of money while still serving my purpose. Then I got down here and you get into these mountains and you get next to these rivers and you get, <laughs> you know, you see all these huge deer walking around. And you're like, you know what? I think this is the right fit. <laughs> so uh, once I got down here, I met I met my beautiful wife, Stacy, and uh, we stayed here. Uh, yeah, the rest is history. I love it here. I don't want to leave here. Um, it's only about an hour from Columbus now, so I can still pop up and get home really fast. Um, so yeah, so spent the, the rest of my time in Athens, Ohio at Athens High School, which is the biggest high school in our small Appalachian County. And uh, poverty rate is pretty high. It's higher. The ra actual rate is higher in some of the other area schools where we sit right in a city. But we have a, a very large um, population of, of rural poverty and um, that purpose, that purpose driven lifestyle of helping kids who don't come from a great situation is, you know, if, th if that's, if that's what you feel that you're drawn to do, this is the place to do it. Right. Right. And so somewhat, somewhat Athens is on the map, not to segue off too much, it's going to stay on the same topic, but way more on the map than it used to be due to due to the rise of Joe Burrow and the NFL um, yeah. coming out of Athens High School and uh, seeing when it, when he when Joe actually did his his Heisman acceptance speech up there ended up you know really shining some light on on some of the poverty associated in that area you know talking about hunger for kids that uh, go on Christmas break coming back weighing, you know, weighing less than when they left because their only structured meal plans are, you know, a lot of times through the high school. And, and can you, can you, can you talk, talk to that at all or speak to that at all? Yeah. The hunger or the Joe Burrow? <laughs> uh, well, we'll do hunger first and then we'll move yeah, to Joe later. I, um, there is no question that, and, and there are so many directions we could go with this, with, with the, with the, post-traumatic stress that I see mm. in my job and, and comparing that with what you all have been through or, or what many, you know, hundreds of thousands of men have been through in war. Um, we see that in Appalachia and we really have to, to um, train our teachers and train ourselves. It is an everyday training for me to try to connect with kids who are in such traumatic home situations. They don't have heat in their homes. Some of them literally have dirt floors in some of their some of the places they live. Some of them do not have running water. And while the rest of us go through our six and a half hours of somewhat stressful, you know, working with the kids and having all these dynamics, then they then we all go home. Most of our teachers and our and me, we go home to this comfortable house with heat and and basically everything we need is there. Uh, supportive families, uh, heat air conditioning, refrigerators full of food, all of that, N not necessarily being able to wrap our minds around the trauma that our students leave our classrooms and go home to. Hmm. And then when they come back the next day, having left 18 hours of trauma behind them, they come right back into the school where sometimes we, and I include myself in this list, lose our patience with them when they're not ready to just walk right back into lockstep 
and sit there and do six and a half hours of secretarial labor in geometry classes and history classes. And we constantly have to remind ourselves that we may be the only support system that these kids have that is consistent, that feeds them every day, that gives them encouragement every day. And it is a vigilant, you have to keep constant vigilance that that's, that is the real calling of your job. It's great if we can teach them two plus two equals four. I think that's fantastic. And they need to learn those things. And if we can get to philosophy and we can get to, you know, where we sit in the scope of history and how we should be good citizens, those are all important things. But number one, if you look at like, you know, Bloom's taxonomy, or you look at the hierarchy of needs for kids, the, we can't climb up that ladder of cognitive development until we support their most basic needs, mm. safety, you know, safety and security, food security, um, taking care of their emotional security. Those things have to come first. And that's the biggest calling mm -hmm. in, in my job in rural Appalachia is let's take care of that baseline first. This is even, this could even go into that setting up your shot thing. I can't shoot for the stars with these kids until we just set up, we got to build the foundation first. And um, it's my job as an administrator to make sure that our teaching staff understands that. And that I vigilantly keep that in mind all the time. So yeah, there is a few food insecurity, uh, but there is even more so right now, I think uh, um, an emotional and purposelessness insecurity that's even more profound. Even the kids who have food mm. are missing that. And the kids who don't have food are missing that, that piece about, um, you know, emotional security and um, having that good foundation that you and I were fortunate enough to have with our parents. And so when looking at, a, at this problem and trying to, trying to come up with solutions, what is there that can be done about, uh, about some of these issues? Yeah, that's the million dollar question, like literally, because it's, it really comes down to funding. Um, and the ability for us to afford resources. In Southeast Ohio, our resources are limited. We have families that move here because we're a college town. We have <clears throat> we have Ohio University in our town, which mm. is a pretty pretty good sized state college in the in the state of Ohio. We have a lot of families that'll move in from Chicago, New York, you know, other places, and they'll say, "Man, you guys just don't have the resources for trauma here that we did when we came from Chicago, or when we came from New York, when we came from LA." And it's true. So in Southeast Ohio, there probably isn't as there aren't as many options for mental health counseling. That's that's the biggest mm. thing to me that's lacking. The one the one um, the one through line that runs through all of our trauma and all of our problems for the most part. And I think you could even say this in places like Chicago, even up in Columbus and Cleveland and Cincinnati, all the big cities in Columbus or in, in Ohio will say that their biggest problem is probably mental health right now. Hmm. And that has a lot to do with the lockdowns. It has a lot to do with online schooling and not having that consistency of, of care uh, in the school buildings. The kids got kind of used to things being a little fast and loose with the schools. And we're coming back out of that now. You're starting to see the normalcy set back in. But there are still a lot of students who are struggling with the mental health side of things. And then you add to all of that the cell phone generation of constant contact through these um through uh, screens media. yeah yeah mm. you, you this social media generation it has its its impact as well on mental health and it's kind of the perfect storm for problems to rise and i think as a collective in education we're having conversations about how can we best help these kids so a lot of it's just we need time 
time to have conversation, you know, sometimes the, sometimes conversations about best practices and education help a lot. We'll, we'll hear something from another school that they're doing and we'll go, Ooh, let's implement that practice. See if that doesn't help kids and it'll help a percentage of them. Then yeah. you'll hear something, you know, you have professional development opportunities that, that help you for the most part in Southeast Ohio, we're limited by our, by the amount of resource that we have. And, um, that's what I'm, constantly working with my principal his name's chad springer he does a great job he's actually a, a veteran as well um he and i work together on a systems approach to say we know we don't have resources uh so what systems can we put in place to maximize the effectiveness of the resources that we have mm. to help the kids who are most in need and that's what my job is is to say i know i don't have the resources they're not coming most likely if they do great but since they're probably not my job is to maximize the effectiveness of the system by putting systems in place to maximize the effectiveness of the resources we do have. Mm -hmm. and, and what are some of the resources at least that you do have? Yeah. In South, Southeast Ohio, we have um, Hopewell Health Centers and we have um, we have integrated services. They're two outside organizations that help us to get mental health assistance to kids with, with low income. Mm -hmm. um, we have a great, I have a great teaching staff. I mean, my best resource is a great teaching staff. They've been so open-minded and so patient with, sorry, with these emails that pop up. Uh, they've been so patient with the the students who need help. I tell them all the time, man. This, I heard this one time on a not Netflix documentary about a basketball coach. He said, the kids who need me the most deserve me the least. Hmm. I'll, I'll repeat that. The kids who, and I'll tell teachers that all the time, the kid who needs you the most deserves you the least. And it, because that kid will come in cussing you, mm -hmm. they'll come in telling, you know, telling you how awful you are because not because you're so awful or because you deserve to be cussed out, but because they're facing trauma in the 18 hours, they're not in the building. Yeah. I think it's yeah. hard. I think it's lost sometimes in, in defensive reaction to situations like that, um, bullying and such. And, you know, your, your niece goes through a little bit of that at her school at, at the ripe age of nine years old, bullying's already right. a thing. And I just right. have to explain to her, like, if that person is acting this way in a public place at school, can you imagine what they go through at their house? Right. And then, you know, and Kenley's an old soul, but you know, she took that and she's like, yeah, they're probably, it's probably really not good with the language yeah. they use in public. Likely that language is being used at or around them on a, on a consistent basis or, you know, the same with attitudes and, and hostilities and, and aggression. So, um, you can't imagine what they're going through or I can't imagine what they're going through. Absolutely. Yep. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And, and then, I think, and then that be, that's a difficult situation in itself. Cause how do you, how do you even change that? Yeah. Yeah. At times there is no changing it. And at I think there are times where a kid is just entrenched in those thought processes. And sometimes I heard a great thing, you know, I went through one of these, uh, you know, you, you, you and I have similar politics, even though you and I'll throw down sometimes on, on certain things. I, I definitely, I've gone to some of this and said, you know what, I'm going to go to one of these diversity, inclusion, equity trainings. I'm going to see how this works. I, I've gone, gone to three or four of them. And I'll be honest with you, as much fear that's out there about them, I've been impressed by several, the tact that's actually taken in several of these meetings. And the one lady said, you guys are going to teach them about treating people, you know, no matter where they come from, no matter what their background is, you treat them as a human being. You know, that's a, that's a good thing to teach in schools. But there are some of these kids who go home, and if they were to say that in their home, they would be abused. 
So some kids, if they're trying to live the way you're teaching them to live in a school building, when they go home, it, it puts them in danger to live that way, to say, hey, I'm going to treat a gay kid like I would my straight friend. They're the same to me. I don't I'm not going to judge that person. I'm not going to mistreat them or bully them in their home. Sometimes they're expected to bully them or to marginalize that person. And that kind of struck home to me is like, you know, sometimes the kids we're talking to when they go home, the things that we we take for granted is just, yeah, you treat a human as a human, regardless of their lot in life or their choices about how they live their life. We take that as a given. And in some homes, that's not the case. Uh, and, and in fact, a kid is in danger if they go home and that's the kind of stuff that they're saying. So it's definitely, um, you know, that was an eye opening thing. Yeah. And that's, uh, it's almost like culturalistically shocking because mm-hmm. it, at least to me and you deal with it more, but you know, I left home at 18, been in the Marine Corps since then, all of my friends, all of their families, uh, you know, been paid and, you know, have a steady income and, you know, um, so it's not something that I ever even like, it wasn't on my scope as far as, you know, bigger politics or geo, even how, how much suffering there was. And then once you learn it, like you said, I like, I look back at my childhood and tell people all the time, like, dude, I have nothing to complain about. I was, I, I hit, like you said, I hit a gold mine. Like my parents were loving and strict, uh, at, at, at almost probably the perfect, uh, combination because it, you know, it's almost unfair when you think about how other people have it. Um, yep. So, yeah, all good points. And so you said something a minute ago. You said something about shaping your shot, and and that's kind of kind of going to be the uh, the whole lot of our conversation from here out. It was a conversation that we had had before, and I was trying to build this platform between my book and and, and ideas of a podcast. And this was years ago. And, uh, and you said something to me and like, I had a whiteboard at that point. I didn't have any equipment and I just knew I had a whiteboard in my laptop. So my, my whiteboard was hanging up and we talked about shaping your shot and that whole conversation struck with me. And I remember telling you then, Hey, I'm going to have you on and we're going to talk about that because it really impacted me because, um, and I'll let you get into it, but shaping your shot, uh, meaning you got a decision to make or a, uh, you know, an opportunity to make. Uh, one time and you need to treat it like one time and give yourself all of the best opportunities um, to make it work. And so, so let's kick into that and that conversation and, and, and kind of spread the knowledge. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely old knowledge. You know, I like, I think you read a little bit of Ryan holiday, like Mm. stoic stuff. And um, you know, you've turned into a bit of a philosopher. I've even kind of teased, statue because i said your book got better as it went along because you like you got more educated and over the how many years did it take you to write that book? so yeah so the book was like i mean from beginning to end what oh my god eight ten 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 years and synthesize information mm. and i i love your book for that exact reason like I love reading it and seeing this, the growth of this man over time that I've come to know is like being a guy who was like a Marine first and maybe a philosopher second. <laughs> and now you're telling young Marines, dude, read, please yeah. read. Because I think what you're telling them is essentially set up your shot. Know why you're here. 
Hmm. Like, don't just go out there. Yeah. Guns and jumping out of airplanes and, and, and learning how to fight, you know, that's all well and good. And I think it's part of synthesizing your manhood, but another part of that is becoming educated knowing why you're on this earth and knowing how you can carry whatever you're learning as you go through these experiences into being a better man after you're done with those experiences. Mm. And I, I think that's what I meant by setting up your shot is like, don't just jump into things impetuously that, you know, if you jump in too quick, you know, be a chess player, not a checkers player. Like when you jump in, know where you're headed, build the foundation for, for, um, for whatever it is that you're headed into, because if you don't, I think a lot of times those things crumble. They don't have a mm. good foundation. And so whether it's relationship build cast or whatever it is, you know, try to um, try to maintain your foundation, align your moral compass, align mm. your purpose before you jump in with two feet and something that, um, you know, make it really gets a chance to grow. Um, so that's what in any, in any professional move that I take from here on out, I'm going to do my best to make sure that I'm, I always align my moral compass with the decisions that I make with the leadership decisions that I make. Um, I try to analyze them within the framework of my purpose as a human being and, um, my, my desire for where I want our students to go, mm. uh, what I need for my family. Those are all, they will weigh into every professional decision I make it make from here on out. Yeah, I definitely have taken it in as um, advice years ago when you when you said it to me. And it's like, you say it's old language. And yes, I do like Ryan Holiday uh, and, and several of the Stoics. Um, and it is old information. But what's interesting is like, uh, like the emergence of Jordan Peterson years ago. He came out and he said a bunch of things that a lot of people were thinking, maybe, but didn't have the dialogue didn't possess the vocabulary and the dialogue and the conversational skills that they needed to make it as crystal clear, like some of the points as, as the, as it can be made if somebody yeah. has the vocabulary and dialogue. And yeah. so though it's old information, it's like I was told all the way growing up, knowledge is power, knowledge is power. Yeah. And that's what they're telling you is read, go get experience, go get learned experience, yeah. you know, and, and so I just think it's huge. Um, something else that you said to me uh, along the along the years that stuck was that you impact everybody within your sphere of uh, influence, being your language, the way you talk. Can you get into that a little bit? Yeah, I think uh, there's a really good group. I'm going to forget. Oh, Tim Kite and Brian Kite. They're two. I suppose you call them motivational speakers. Um, but I consider them more, more than that, because a lot of what they're doing, they're not trying to motivate. They're trying to just kind of keep it real. And one of the thing they, things they talk about is, you know, think about how you're impacting the people that are directly around you, you know, quit thinking about the distant past or the far future. Um, consider how you are impacting the people within your direct vicinity. Mm. And they call that something like you're, your 12 square feet. I forget exactly how many square feet they, they say it is, but it's this sphere of people directly around you. And I remember before I even heard them, I thought I always used to think about, this is so weird, but I always used to think about like every time I cross through the threshold of a door, like every time I walk through a doorway, it's like, is this room that I just walked into better because I'm in it or worse because I'm in it. Mm. And if it's not better then I need to check who I am as a person, because mm. If I walk in and immediately people, my employees feel threatened by me or feel 
that they need to be on their guard or that they can't trust me, then I've got a problem in my leadership style. Hmm. Uh, that's for me. I mean, there are certain people who are Machiavellian and want to be feared, you know, and that's fine. If that's their style, it's just not mine. Mm-hmm. So I just always want to know that every time I walk through a doorway, no matter what's going on on the other side of that door, I want to be the guy that gets it fixed or gets it, uh, makes it a little bit better because I'm there, even if it just means listening uh, whatever. And, and trust me in my job, I mean, today was crazy. We got a full moon today and it was on man. So from the time I walked in, like if you ever watch an emergency room show, that's what a high school looks like sometimes because my office will just have trauma after trauma. And I mean, literally just kids pouring in that have problems and every doorway I walk through, you know, you can feel sometimes the air gets sucked out of the room because like, Oh, there he is. You know, is he, mm-hmm. what is he here to get me is, you know, it's like when the state highway patrolman pulls you over sometimes and I have to know how kids see me and know that when I walk into that room that I need to frame myself up, set up my shot so that I am, they know that I'm there to care for them. Even if sometimes that means discipline, mm. even if sometimes that means, you know, they're, they're not going to have the greatest outcome that they would love to have. Um, that I'm there because I love them. I care about them and I want to see them do better as a human being. Hmm. And I think I'm getting to the point three years in now where even the kids who are really bad characters sometimes and are ornery, they know that they know that even when I'm not making decisions that they would love for me to make that, that it is with love that I make it. And so fortunately, uh, yeah, that's the, yeah. So yeah, that it, it definitely, um, it guides the way that I view my job still. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And speak a little bit to the purpose. Um, so we did a, we, we do a purpose driven life episode and we talked about uh, the loss and lack of purpose. And that's something that I experienced at a real level uh, coming home. And, and, and especially after, you know, being, being retired out, uh, not even wanting that, but that, that becoming a thing. It's like you train your whole life to be one thing and then you have that lack of purpose. Right. So you said, you spoke earlier about these kids having lack of purpose and, um, and how do you, how, how are the teaching staff and how are the, how the schools combating that? Is it just positive reinforcement? Is it, uh, you know, is it, uh, do we have programs for that? And, and if we don't, is that another one of those million dollar questions on how we can improve it? And so, like, I guess the, is this another one of those million dollar questions on what we can do? Is there positive reinforcement? Like, I know I'm sure the teaching staff and stuff are, are giving positive reinforcement to these kids, these, you know, that are lacking purpose or lacking direction, but, uh, like, like what else can we do about this situation? I think this goes a little bit back to our hierarchy of needs that Mm -hmm. we talked about earlier. I think if a kid is looking for their next meal, they're not really worried about purpose. Their purpose Mm -hmm. is to eat. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So a lot of these kids, I mean, it's like, I've, you know, I've, I've, I've handed out at least 10 copies of, um, man's search for meaning, you know, like I give that book. I don't know if you've read that book, Mm -mm. but if you haven't, you need to, uh, written by a man who was in the Holocaust. And it, it, it's a great, it is a great book. I think every student should read it. And like, there is no greater trauma than being in a Nazi concentration camp. Mm. So he's writing from a place of like the men and women who he saw make it through the Holocaust were those who had purpose outside of the walls of the prison Yeah, and who had, you know, 
these other, they had passions that were greater than just self. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the, that it can maybe be instilled, but a lot of kids who are looking for their next meal or try not to get sexually, physically, or emotionally abused at home, or are just looking for somebody to like, to feel like somebody likes them or cares about them. Mm-hmm. They're just, they're not ready for the conversation about purpose. That's my opinion. I could be wrong, but I think that the biggest thing is let's start with getting these kids, their basic needs. And then they almost all human beings are ready to have that conversation. Once that happens, when they have a full belly and they don't feel that they're in fear for abuse. um, I think at that point you can start to have that conversation about, okay, what's the big picture look like for you. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of them even have the wherewithal. Some kids even have the wherewithal within the abuse to find that purpose. But I think that a lot of times, and I'm not a psychologist, but a lot of times that seems to be a, like a dispositional issue. It's a personality issue. Some kids have the personality to have that perseverance, even within great trauma from the time they were a baby. They just have that it factor of working through that. Resilience factor. Yeah. Yeah. Having, having the wherewithal to find purpose within the pain of their life. Hmm. But most people just don't have that dispositional factor. And I wish I had the magic elixir to, to just give the kid and say, Hey, look at how great life can be. If you change your, your viewpoint, you know, it's easy for me to say. Right. And so a lot of days it's, it, it's, you know, what I try to start with, with a kid who's in trauma is habit forming. Can you, and, and I think Peterson speaks to this a little bit as does William McRaven, the, the, uh, is Admiral. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, he speaks to like, make your bed, clean your room, start with these really basic things that no matter how sucky your situation is, you can pull the covers over your bed in the morning and you can put your pillows back where they went and you can throw your dirty clothes in the hamper and you can have your head pop off the pillow Mm. when your first alarm goes off rather than hitting the snooze three times. Mm. Let's just get our life together one habit at a time. And so that's how I try to move through it with kids who are in trauma. Um, and that's the majority of who I see. So I, and we're back. So sorry about that, guys. We had some technical difficulties. But, John, you were saying uh, with, with these kids and pressing upon them, you know, taking control of the things that they can control. It's almost like the serenity, right? Uh, and, and then helping them understand the difference between what they can and can't can't change. But you made mention of Peterson and, uh, and others uh, talking about, you know, make your bed, pull your covers up, uh, straighten your room up, that, that kind of notion. And, and that gives them that maybe the building block to self-esteem and purpose. Yeah, exactly. I think, I think that's it. I think the, the shoe in to getting that start for purpose is just building habits. And like, I'm not a big fan. I don't, I don't know who all talks about it. I know you got a few people who are going one way or another on this, but I'm not a huge fan of motivation. I think it helps a little bit. Um, You know, when somebody's yelling in your face, it definitely helps. But I think a guy who can say, regardless of rock music playing in the background, regardless of listening to a Jocko podcast, like I can go out and work because that's who I am. That's what I do. So when the alarm goes off, I don't hit the snooze button. It's just not who I am because Mm -hmm. I know that if I start to let those little habits slip, then my diet slips, then my relationship with my wife slips, then my relationship with my work slips. And I think reverse engineering that and teaching kids who have never even had a good habit, you know, just start small, start with this one small thing. I think it can, I think it is the right key to try to unlock some of that transformational behavior in kids who come from trauma. Mm. 
Yeah, I know I had on the podcast uh, before this Adam Franco, and he's a he's a uh, football coach for the Cocoa Beach High School uh, in Cocoa Beach, Florida. And it's kind of the same situation, a similar situation to what you have in Appalachia where these are underprivileged children. And he finds his purpose in mentoring these kids. Now, he's not a teacher, but you even have experience as a coach being able to be on the field and, and you know, say what you want to say about high school sports. But I learned a lot about being a man on a football field and on a baseball diamond and on a wrestling mat. And I learned a lot of those things from the coaches that I had, you know, instilling discipline and instilling, um, you know, tough love sometimes and, and things of that nature. Um, and can you speak to that as being a coach to the uh, to the players as well? Oh, my. Yes, I used to love. I mean, coaching is something that I miss greatly when I took over and administrate when I changed my career from classroom to administration at our school district. You can't be an administrator and coach. And it's the one great. I don't want to say regret, but the one the one thing that I'm missing in my life was that at the end of the day, when sometimes you would deal with the headaches of the classroom where things were very packaged, you know, I, we have to get through this content today. You would go out on that field and you got a second bite at the apple to try to change lives. And when you go, when you go out on a, on a football field, it doesn't matter what the sport is. It doesn't even matter if it is sport. When you get out there with kids after school and those co-curricular extracurricular activities, that's really where lives can be changed even mm -hmm. more so than the classroom. So the coaching aspect, um, very important. I, I would say your buddy who doesn't teach, but he does coach has every bit as much impact as any teacher can have in the classroom. Coaches are extremely mm -hmm. important. Mm -hmm. and go into that a little bit. I mean, talk about some of your experiences with kids. I mean, like we said, we bring Burrow in. You you were a, you were a, a coach on the football team at the time Burrow came through, and clearly we're looking at a class act in the making um, mm -hmm. from from his on-field to his off-field. Uh, the kid's a class act, and, and that's that, – that's a testament to how he was brought up. That's a testament to his coaches that he had coming up from all ages. Uh, but the formidable years right there before going into college to so talk, talk, talk about some of the uh, life changing experiences on the, on the coaching aspect. Yeah. There's a book that's written. I'm going to forget the name of it right now. And I hate that, but he talks about the difference between trans transformational leadership and transactional leadership. So if you think of a transaction like a banking transaction or or like a transaction in a uh, in a purchase of something, you're trading money in exchange for for an item or a service. Mm -hmm. A lot of coaches will say, hey, I really need a left tackle. Hey, I really need a kid at this weight class in wrestling, you know, mm -hmm. and it's very transactional. Hey, you need to improve this because it helps the team and I need to do better in my job. So I need you, if we're going to win, you need to, you fit like a chess piece in this spot. That's transactional leadership. And there's a place for that. Like there, there has to be, you have to call the plays and you have to put kids in positions to help you. And then another type of leader leadership is transformational leadership. I'm going to try to improve you as a, as a person because I know that by improving you as a person, it will bring up all of the other people around you. Mm. And one thing that Joe, Joe Burrow has particularly, and I did get to coach Joe, I was actually on the middle school team, middle school staff when he was in middle school. Then when he went to high school, I went to the high school staff with him. So I was actually 
all along his road from seventh grade all the way through 12th grade, I was, I had the fortune to be around and see that level of greatness. Mm. And one of his greatest assets was his ability to elevate the, not just gameplay, but the behavior, the competitiveness, the drive of the people all around him. It wasn't just that he elevated his game. He elevated his silently. And then everyone else knew, okay, this is a person that makes me want to transform who I am so that I can catch up to, to performing at that level. Um, and how did he do so, that? Yeah. How does he do that? By his play? Or is it his all-around, um, you know, like aura? Is it Joe? Is there something about Joe, a factor? Yeah, I think part of it is that he's kind of a kind of a nerd. Um, he like he loves video games. He loves kind of quirky music. He's like a chameleon a little bit. He can fit in with a ton of different crowds. He doesn't. He's not mean spirited. Mm. You know, there's not a mean spirited part about him. Like there were people who competed against Joe and against all of us who felt like you know he was a little scary because he he was a competitor. Like he would pound his chest and tell you like I'm coming at you and. It's not going to be a good ending, uh, but but at the same time, you know that was all just the competitive edge. It was never malicious. He's just mm. not a malicious type of person, mm. and um, he's brave enough to stand up for what he believes in, and the kids know that. and And I think people just want to emulate that. They want to be around that. And then mm. you add that to just having success. Obviously, he's genetically gifted. Mm. He had a family full of athletes. He had older brothers like like Tyler and Lucas did that, that probably pestered him a little bit or improved his competitive edge. And, um, that's that, that whole team, I think we had, I'm not going to remember exactly how many, but I think we had North of 20 seniors on that team, which for a school that only has, you know, 700 students in it, having 20 seniors is a lot. Hmm. And, uh, 20 plus, I think we had 24 or something and every single kid to a man was committed to success. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't happen just because if you're, if your team is led by your coaching staff, you might have a little bit of success. If your team is led by the team members, by the, by the guys within the group, mm. you're going to have success. It will happen. And would you um, say that's transformative in all aspects of life to include civilian well, yeah, think, world fortune yeah. 500? It's definitely speaks in the, you know, we've, we've done several podcasts of, of how it speaks, uh, in the Marine Corps and in, in the operational level, but that, that that's everywhere, uh, in my opinion. Sure. If you look at your podcast, your podcast and other podcasts, you look at what's going on with, say, Joe Rogan right now. He There's a certain purpose to what he does. Mm-hmm. If it was fully about the $100 million or fully about, you know, uh, achieving some political thing, that's transactional. Mm-hmm. I am here to X. But transformational means like I have a greater purpose than myself here. And if I don't make a dime, this is what I'm chasing. Mm-hmm. It is, it, it, this isn't a transactional thing. This is a purpose driven thing. Mm-hmm. And so I think with, as long as your purpose is aligned um, with a good moral compass, you know, cause people can have negative purposes. Sure. Um, people with a bad purpose can do really bad things and they can motivate people to do really bad things. Mm. Um, but I think if you have a good moral compass that's aligned toward truth and honesty and um, improving the, the, the experience of people's lives, a transformational style of leadership means that you're, you're able not only to, to walk the walk like Joe does, 
but then you have a defensive lineman who says, I want to make a stop because I want to get the ball back to that guy mm-hmm. because he has that it factor. And I think that it factor is that transformational, like I will take everything on my shoulders, but you know that if I'm going to, you need to, too. Mm-hmm. We all need to be willing to bear the brunt of the burden of whatever we're going through. Mm-hmm. And you better have prepared yourself to do it just like I did. And I'll show you how I do it. And maybe you can show me how you do it. And together we're going to figure out how to, to carry any weight that we need to carry. That's, mm-hmm. that is transformational leadership. And mm-hmm. that's what he does well. Yeah. What would you say? Um, are you saying that's his best attribute is his transformational leadership? That or, and, or was coming no, up? No, his his best attribute is field vision. <laughs> field vision, yeah. yeah. I think I think his best attribute is is uh, dissecting. He can very quickly dissect a defense, uh, especially um, in, within the offense that offenses that he's been given. When you spread it out and go five wide, there are only so many looks that you can get. He is very good at dissecting. With your 11 pieces, I can, I know where I'm going to go. So he's very good at finding spots. Yeah. I think that's his number one attribute. To me, number two is that transformational leadership. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's pretty you, insane with the vision. That's a fact. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be hard to follow a guy who had really bad vision. Yeah. And I think vision vision is vision is the ability to see what most people don't. Yep. And then, and then your transformational ability is, you know, when we say somebody has good vision, if they had regular vision, they would just see what everyone else sees. Yeah. Having being a visionary or being great at that vision is I can look at the same picture you do and I can pick out nine things you didn't even see when you were looking at it. And that's a huge asset that he has that a lot of people don't. And you can't even put your finger on why that makes him so good. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it makes him good makes his transformational ability that much more powerful because not only is he this quiet leader that bears the burden of the team, but he also has this incredible ability to, to be a visionary. I think a visionary football player that sees the field very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tyler, you know, not on the same level as Joe, but our little brother, Tyler was pretty good as a defensive uh, linebacker uh, until he got hurt. But that was one of the things watching him play he always knew the field like and those people those guys out there that are able to harness that man they get dangerous and uh oh my, yeah and uh yeah it was um you know it was a close one the super bowl was great it was i was pins and needles i couldn't even sit down it's like you got different knowing somebody that's there or you know having some kind of personal connection to somebody that's there changed everything for me in the way i even seen the game and uh and I'm just glad I'm I'm glad that he uh, is doing what he's doing, and I think that the NFL is going to see a whole lot of a, a whole lot of him in the in the years to come. Um, I'm excited about that for him, and I'm excited that you got to take part in you know shaping some of that and being you know being a uh, an imprint on him as a coach and as uh, and as a teacher, which you know. It's just a testament uh, to what you guys are doing at Athens, at least with the program, with the football and the, and the teaching community in general. Yeah, it's been fun to be a part of the ride. I was, he texted after the, after the Heisman Trophy ceremony. He texted and said, "Hey, couldn't have done it without you." And I'm like, "Yeah, BS." Mm-hmm. But thanks for the thought. Thanks for the thought. Right. Uh, I mean, he came back in June. June, I think it was. He was back in Athens and had all the coaches over to place, and we all just sat by a 
campfire and talk for I mean, he sat there and talked to everybody for six hours. Mm-hmm. Like he's just that guy. So the guy that everybody thinks they're getting, the guy that's being shared with the whole country is exactly the guy that he seems to be. Authentic. The, yeah, that's him. Yeah, he's very authentic. And um, yeah, everybody's seeing exactly who and what he is. Yeah, and it's resonating across the entire United States, you know, and maybe even elsewhere, but in multiple states, like even the guys that uh that follow football all the time and they're ragging on each other when their team was out of the hunt, they wanted Joe to win because they're like the guy's just you know his class act that like why would it's hard to cheer against him, and yeah. uh, and so cool and I got to see the what was that the state was it the state championship game that I came home to. Um, when he was a senior, when they died, they dyed their hair blonde for the big, was that, did you go to Ohio state stadium? If that's where it was, I remember going to, maybe it was, uh, no, it was, they lost to the interception right at the end. The guy intercepted. Yeah. That was was the state championship. Yeah. So I was at that one. Yeah. And that's the first time I seen him play. And it was weird because it's like, you see, you were in, you were in the presence of greatness. And and like you said, you couldn't even really put your finger on what it was, but the Joe factor. Yeah. Yeah. Wild, wild, wild. So, uh, I don't know what we're looking at time wise, but if we were to, we're going to start closing it down. I like to give everybody, um, the opportunity to, to speak to whoever it is they want to speak to. If it's that you want to send a message to students, to parents, to the greater America, if you could impart, you know, knowledge on on whoever sees this what would be the biggest couple of pieces of advice you would tell people oh my that is a loaded question um i think the the biggest group i'd want to reach is is parents Mm. you know if, if you have children do right by them spend time with them pay attention to them listen to them hear them support them in whatever ways you're capable of supporting them and if you don't know how to support them find help with that um I think the biggest trouble that we see in my profession is a lack of um, sometimes not even for the parents fault. It's just, they don't, they, they know what they knew from their childhood. And so they use that, mm. that framework to parent themselves. And if you ever feel like you're starting to see a change in your kid that, you know, isn't the, the, the best look, you know, um, ask for help, get, get ideas from other people. Um, so I think parents, that's a big group that I, that I feel like I could always do more to help. Like, Hey, here's what I see in having helped to support thousands of kids over the last 15 years. This is what, this is what I see in, um, and how we can guide these kids in the right direction. So I think parents just can't loving your kids, treating your kids with respect and in humility, and also helping to guide them and finding the right places to guide them. Hmm. Um, that, that to me, and, and that's a struggle. That's not like, I'm not saying, I'm not speaking from my high horse cause I deal with it every day. I think all, anybody who is a father or a mother knows how difficult that job is. Hmm. And even when you got all the resources that you need, you know, how much screen time do I give them? How much do I tell them this is the wrong thing versus letting them figure it out on their own? Hmm. And you know, how much, how much do I protect them? How much am I the overbearing you know, please don't go here and put guardrails around them versus letting them figure out. Yeah. Sometimes you stick a penny in a light socket and that hurts, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's difficult for all of us, but I think that's why we need constant communication about how to be better leaders for our families. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Matt, what do you got? 
I'm good. You're good. No questions. I'm always good. No questions from Matt. Awesome. Awesome Matt. topic. Yeah, man. <laughs> um, yeah, man. I, well, I, I appreciate you taking the time to do this for me. I know uh, we try to do it in Ohio, then we're going to do it here. And then it uh, seemed like one thing after another kept uh, kept getting in the way. But I'm glad that we're doing it now. I'm glad that we got it out there. Um, I hope that all of you guys enjoyed this. And we're going to have more uh let's say um, different fields coming in outside of the outside of the Marine Corps and outside of the uh, outside of the service. And I think it's important just like how everything ties together with the PTSD uh, children that have PTSD before even, you know, even going into the service. And then I know we talked to Harold Shrek before about the complex PTSD that comes uh, from having multiple things. So maybe it's abuse, maybe it's other things that they're dealing with. And, and we just need to find, uh, we need to find a point to where we can help each other get, uh, get to a better place as far as that's concerned. And I think it starts with the kids. Uh, and that's a, that's a big reason I want to have you on John, because I know you're passionate and driven, uh, for more than just money, you have, uh, the right heart for, for your occupation. And, and so I want to show an example of that to people and, uh, and have the intelligent conversation about those things. So again, I appreciate you, uh, taking the time out to do this and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk again. And, uh, if there's nothing from Matt, uh, we'll close it right there, guys. We appreciate you coming out. And, uh, if you took anything out of this episode, um, tag somebody that needs to hear it, follow the page, like the page, uh, share any of the episodes that you take anything out of. We, we ask you to, you know, don't be selfish. Give that, give that information to somebody that needs to hear it. Uh, for me and Matt, we appreciate it, and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Louisiana Gun Shop, your firearm headquarters, specializing in concealed carry guns, ammo, and training. You can get your Louisiana permit with us. Also, a large selection of AR-15s, or if you are that build-it-yourself type of guy or gal, we have all the parts to build and customize your own AR-15. Glock, Sig, Taurus, Ruger. We have all the brands, both in the store or at louisianagunshop.com. Not too far. You're marking the building. Hit him. Yeah, that's good. That's a good shot. That's a money. Yeah. Money.